I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. Love Letters is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. My friend Margaret spent her early 30s looking for a new kind of dating experience. I was 32, and I was a pretty inexperienced dater. I had done a fair amount, but what I would like to say is I was dealing with a lack of qualified applicants. No offense to anyone I dated at that time. I would get a certain amount into something and then I would get anxious and I would start to feel very emotionally responsible for the other person and I would not be having any fun and I would stop. So I was looking for not so much a dare to be great situation as a dare to be stupid situation. (laughs) And I found a really great one. (laughs) From the Boston Globe and PRX, this is Love Letters. I'm Meredith Goldstein. Today, I want to introduce you to my friend Margaret. She's one of the first people I thought about when we picked this season's theme, Breaking the Rules. I think of Margaret as a rule breaker in many good ways. Sometimes she's the loudest voice in the room, often saying the best, most clever thing. She's a librarian and a pop culture commentator, and she's the kind of person who, when you compliment her dress, will probably say, it has pockets. She has very good instincts, which makes the story she's going to tell that much more surprising. There are multiple characters in this narrative, for reasons that will become clear— And for the sake of privacy, we're going to call the man in this story Jack. Or Jacques. In real life, his name could be pronounced two different ways. He wouldn't commit to just one. Can you explain his take on the pronunciation of his name? Well, a normal person who has a name that can be pronounced two different ways, commonly, would have like a stated standard preference for which one he would hope to encounter most often, right? If you have a name that could be pronounced Jack or Jacques, when someone asks you, or, wait, is it Jack or Jacques? A normal person would be able to say, oh, it's Jack or oh, it's Jacques. And what my Jack would say was, well, both are my name. Noncommittal about a name. It's just, it's just, it's a symbol. Yeah, it's the first in a long parade of red flags. <laughs> Margaret meets Jack, that's what I'll call him, at an event in 2016. He was there with a friend of mine, and he was 
cute and funny. And I remember vividly that he said he was watching Jane the Virgin. And I was like, hmm, that's a show that men frequently watch with partners. So I'm going to ask some investigatory questions around that to determine if he has a partner. And I was like, oh, wow, that show has some really like strong cliffhangers and things like that. Are you watching with someone? Do you have to like pace yourself and, and wait to watch with them? Or do you just get to watch like at exactly your pace? And he was like, oh, I get to watch at exactly my pace. And I was like, wow, OK. I went home and I added him on Facebook. And then a week or so later, I was like, hey, I really had a great time meeting you. And I think you're really cute. If you'd ever like to get a drink sometime, just let me know. And he wrote me back and he was like, well, I just started seeing someone. But if you'd like to go out for a drink and are okay with just finding one another platonically cute, then I'd still like to. So I said yes. And we went on what was probably to that point the best first date I'd ever been on. I don't really function well with a lack of clarity. And so I addressed it right away. I was like, this was really fun. And frustratingly, it feels like the best first date I've been on in a really long time. And he was like, for me too. And I was like, okay, well, you have a partner? And he was like, I do. And I was like, and you're not looking to change that. And he was like, I'm not. And I was like, great. Well, I'm not looking to be a factor in you changing that. So I guess nothing's going to come of this. And he was like, I guess not. And then we proceeded to test the limits of that for a certain amount of time. And it rapidly became apparent to me that it was much more upsetting for me that we might be doing something that his partner wouldn't feel great about than it was ever upsetting for him. And it wasn't anything like wildly inappropriate, like no kissing, no physical affection, just a lot of flirting. And I was like, we're not going to be talking anymore because like this is not a good dynamic. And I I didn't like that I felt worse about it, it seemed like, than he did. So that was Jack round one. Jack round two started in November of 2016, which folks might remember as sort of a, a meaningful time in our country's history. Oh, yeah. Um, Look at that. I, I blocked it out so much that I was like, what? Oh, right. <laughs> right. I'll take it out of my compartmentalization tiny box. Yeah, you have to because it's important because that is how he decided to slide back into my life. <laughs> wow. OK, explain. Shortly after the election of Donald Trump, he Facebook messaged me and was like, hey, I'm reaching out to people who I know are in uh, vulnerable places about the election just to sort of like make myself available as a support system. And so if you ever like want to talk or um, like need any kind of help or support, like just know I'm here. And I was like, well, that's some bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> like, hey, baby, what's wrong? <laughs> right. And I knew at this point that he and his partner had split up and that he was possibly single. And the place that I was in is I was like, well, I know I'd still like to sleep with this person, but I also know that he is exceptionally bad news and would not be a good boyfriend. Like, what should I do? Like in um, Mindy Kaling's The Mindy Project, which is weirdly a profound emotional touchstone for me, she talks about how the perfect hookup 
would be like someone you're very attracted to, but hold in deep contempt. And she's like, Draco Malfoy. <laughs> no, that listen, that makes <laughs> exactly perfect right. sense to me. It's a very, it's a very tempting scenario. And I was like, I think I may have finally found my Draco Malfoy. But Margaret discovers maybe she's not actually looking for Draco Malfoy. Like me, she's the kind of person who could actually fall for Draco Malfoy and be like, hey, maybe I've misunderstood this person. Maybe he can change. Margaret starts to fall for Jack. It was in that dangerous space where it's like, well, we're not exclusive, but suddenly we're seeing each other three or four times a week and we're ending each date with an expectation that there's going to be another one. We're in constant contact and we are functionally partners. During that time, I did try to date other people because we weren't exclusive and I knew this was not a good bet. Like This wasn't where I wanted to put down my money, but nothing else was going to hold my attention. After about eight months of that, I was finally like, no, unfortunately, I do actually sincerely care about this person. I have played myself in exactly the way anyone looking at this situation would have anticipated I would. And so I broached the question with him of sort of like, how would you feel about dating exclusively, you know, being boyfriend and girlfriend? And we had this very sensible and adult conversation about like what I would imagine changing. Margaret really wants Jack to consider whether he can commit to a relationship. So she says, hey, don't rush it. You don't need to tell me what you want immediately. Take a week and think about it. So fast forward to a week later, we went out to dinner. And like an idiot, at the beginning of dinner, I broached the subject. Because again, I sort of thought, like, we weren't actually changing that much. We were just changing what we were calling it. And... I was like, what do you think? And he was like, well, I talked with my therapist about it. And he said, if it's not a definite yes, it has to be no. And I was like, okay, I have like 60 to 80 more minutes of sitting in this public restaurant in front of me. (laughs) What am I going to do now? And I said, okay, what's going to happen now is you're going to make small talk with me for the rest of this meal so that I don't cry in public. But when they actually start talking about it more, Jack reveals that he's in love with Margaret. So Margaret's like, well, what's the problem? And he's like, well, I've been thinking about it and I've realized that monogamy is not for me. And I know that that's what you want. And since that's what you want, I don't see a way forward for us. And I was like, oh, that's the problem? (laughs) I was like, actually, that's not an issue for me. Before she'd even met Jack, Margaret had thought about non-monogamy in the abstract, in a positive way. So the decision process goes like this. I was 33, and I'd never really had a serious partner. So the model for intimacy in my life that's most relatable is friendship, right? So already kind of the basic premise of a non-monogamous relationship made a lot of emotional sense to me and sort of more emotional sense than emotional exclusivity. 
because there's a way that they're being sort of like a network. In addition, I'd never really left a lot of space in my life for a partner. And I was always very apprehensive about how that would work. I have a ton of things that I do and I wasn't looking to do less of any of them. And I'd thought for a long time that sort of like the dream would just be like, I can just be someone's ethical side piece, right? And like they have some partner who they build a life with, right? And then they see me occasionally and I have this nice emotional continuity, but I don't have to change my life because I'm not building a life with someone. I'm just, someone is visiting my life from time to time and doesn't that sound neat and convenient? I also just had a lot of apprehension about how relationships work long-term. You know, I hadn't seen a lot that hadn't faced serious challenges. And what I really liked about non-monogamy as a practice is it gave you a way to admit that there could be a lot of different forms that this would take that would all work for people. I want to talk about this because this season is about rules and we've heard a lot of mm-hmm. rules that are broken and whatever. And, and I think in a different context, there's probably a thought of, oh, there are less rules when you are open. And in fact, yeah. it strikes me as the opposite where all of a sudden if two people say we love each other, but we're, we don't want to be exclusive in a traditional way, you have to suddenly make some rules to decide what that setup looks like. So, so what did the two of you decide? Well, the other reason that I was sort of happy to try this is because I had observed what he was like in a monogamous relationship and he was bad at it. Okay. And so one thing that I looked at, I was like, well, he also recognizes he was bad at that and he's reflected on that and he's come up with like, a solution, like a new way forward for him. And like, that's heartening. And like I said, it was one that I felt open to trying. And so I said as much. And he said, you're sure you're doing this because you want to do it. You're not doing this for me. And I was like, no, I understand. Right away, you know, we sort of started talking about things. And I'm a very full transparency person. So in some ways, non-monogamy seemed like a real treat because it's like, okay, well, I just get to know everything. (laughs) Nothing can surprise me because I can just ask you to tell me everything. I was like, okay, so, you know, you've been thinking about this. Like, are there people you've sort of identified that you'd want to try going on dates with? And he was like, yeah, there's a colleague. She's already dealing things non-monogamously. I think she's interested in me and that's something I might like to explore. And I was like, okay, that seems like I can live with that. And I was like, but what I need is I just need you, like, before you go on any dates, let me know what's going to happen. Let me know what is going on between you and these other people on dates. And on his side, he was like, you can do whatever you want to and you don't have to tell me anything. And I was like, okay, I'm probably going to tell you things, though. Like, is that okay? Like, do you are you open to hearing what's going on? He's like, yeah, whatever you want to tell me is fine, but you don't have to tell me anything. And I was like, okay, so this is the plan that we sort of set out with. To Margaret, these rules feel good. They feel workable. But it's actually more than that. She feels like this arrangement could benefit her too. I had wondered if I was, what I liked to say at the time, actionably bisexual for quite a long time. I'd been interested in women, but we have this narrative around queerness, right? Which is like, you're quote unquote born this way. And so 
for me, the fact that dating or being romantically involved with women felt like something I'd have to opt into. It made it seem like that wasn't a legitimate want, right? My thought was like, well, I'd have to be like irresistibly compelled to kiss a woman or I'm straight, right? And I couldn't just be like interested in it. (laughs) Margaret is attracted to women. So she figures she, like her boyfriend, might like to try dating a few. What they didn't necessarily plan on is non-monogamy leading them to the same place, quite literally. We were supposed to go to a party together, and I ended up having to leave early to spend time with my mom, and he ended up showing up late because a friend was in town unexpectedly, and so we missed each other entirely. But we managed to meet the same woman. What happens when a couple evolves into a thruple? Margaret's story continues when we come back. Okay, we're back. So Jack and Margaret have what they're calling an ethically non-monogamous relationship. Margaret and Jack are each other's primary partners, but the ground rules they set allow both of them to date others. There's transparency for all parties. And remember, they've both separately met one woman at the same party. I'll call her Jill. Turns out, at the party, Jack and Jill realize they both have trips planned to South Carolina so they can see an eclipse in the path of totality. They decide, hey, we should meet up while we're there. And then they came back to Boston and they went on a date. And I didn't know any of that, which careful listeners would know means he was not following the bounds of our agreement, which had been very simple. It was like, you can do whatever you want. You just have to tell me about it first. So already breaking the rules. Yeah. Already breaking the rules. Meanwhile, not knowing any of this, Margaret has switched her Tinder app to see women. She sees a woman she likes and swipes right. They match. And then Margaret realizes this is Jill from the party. At this point, Jill has already returned from South Carolina and has had a date in Boston with Jack. So Margaret and Jill start talking. Tinder shows Margaret that she and Jill have mutual connections on social media, one of whom is Jack. I was like, well, I've never dated women. And also, I am in an ethically non-monogamous relationship that, like, just started entering that phase. And we haven't really figured out what that looks like for us and, like, what dating is going to be like. So I'd really just been sort of browsing. But you're really cute and I would definitely like to get to know you better. But I also understand if, like, that's too much for you to engage with right now. She said something like, well, I've had a very crazy year, so... Honestly, that doesn't sound that scary. And I was like, well, great. Like, I'd, I'd love to get a drink sometime. And I was like, but you should know the person I'm dating is like one of our common connections on the site. Like, it's Jack. And this is like 11 o'clock at night or something like that. And I didn't hear anything back. But it didn't seem like that was an issue. Instead, I woke up to a text message from Jack that said something like, it's come to my attention that you've met the woman... I went out on like one date with and like, I know I should have told you that that had happened, 
that was our deal. And like, I'm very sorry. But like, you know, it was one date. And Jack and I just found this hilarious. We were like, what a French farce. (laughs) How comical. Worth mentioning, Jack had never told Jill he was in a relationship. He never brought it up on their date. Margaret's message to Jill, disclosing her relationship with Jack, was the first Jill had heard of it. Margaret tries to put Jill at ease, saying, this is all new for them. In that moment, it wasn't like, wait a minute, he didn't follow the rule. It was, oh my God, we like the same girl. Yeah, and for me, I also knew that like we were both trying something for the first time. I didn't expect it to be perfect or easy to take these steps. This is our first time out of the gate, and I'm not going to call it because you messed up this time. And the first time out of the gate, you like literally both left the gate in the exact same direction to the same woman. Yes, which definitely felt very safe to me. Yeah. Like, again, because part of what I liked about this model was knowing everything. Like, knowing exactly who he was going to be on dates with and exactly what she was like. So we all presented this to each other and our future girlfriend was like, well, if you two don't feel weird about this, I am happy to date each of you. So at this point, we started dating in parallel. So this is still within the realm of ethical non-monogamy. The idea was sort of like, maybe she is going to decide that one of these relationships works for her and the other one doesn't and we'll approach him from there. Maybe she's going to decide that this whole dynamic is too weird and doesn't feel good and she's going to peace out to find her own thing. And I don't know how much we thought about, or maybe we're all really going to like each other and we're going to figure out what it looks like to all date as a triangle, thruple, triad deal. Right around then, Margaret catches Jack in another lie. He presented this date that he and our girlfriend had gone on before he told me. It's just like, just a drink. But I was talking with this person regularly. It became evident that they were having sex, which he'd never talked to me about. And I was like, hey, you were supposed to talk to me before that happened. And I was angrier this time than I'd been before. Wait, what were the rules? If you were just like dating her, what were the rules about, okay, like if we, what were the sex rules? I mean, the rules were basically like, if there's a change in how you're interacting with one another, let me know, right? It's like you go on a first date. And then if you want to go on a second date, you're going to let me know. I think kissing was probably taken as a given, but I definitely was like, if you start having sex with her, let me know. And he didn't. Margaret is furious. She feels like she's trying her best to make this work, but she's not sure she can ever trust Jack. He's had many opportunities to tell her about the true nature of his relationship with Jill, but every time he's been cowardly about it. Still, he apologizes. He really wants to be with Margaret and says he'll do better. After processing this, Margaret decides to give him a second chance, or whatever chance we're on at this point. Things got more serious between the three of us, and that is around when we started to be a official triad and go on dates as three people. Very civilized way of dealing with sort of like who was going home with whom. And it was like, if the three of us went out to dinner, 
the two people who were going home together would pay for the person who was going home alone. And all of my friends who were not accustomed to this were like, God, what a gracious and civilized way of managing these things. And I was like, I know, I'm so smart. We've really sorted this out. Of course, it's more complicated than that. It's like any other relationship, just with more players. What's really hard about dating two people simultaneously is when you're unhappy, trying to figure out, like, where is it coming from? And then also when you're unhappy, trying to figure out, like, can I just unilaterally dissolve this romantic corporation? Do I need to convene a board meeting? Like, what are the steps here? And uh, the two of them really struggled with the dynamic. I think our partner could work with non-monogamy because she really liked being with both of us. But she didn't really like the idea of her partners being with other people, which I just want to say is very reasonable. I ran into Margaret at one point during all of this, and she said to me, hey, let me introduce you to my boyfriend and my girlfriend. And I was like, okay, cool. And then there were three of them, holding hands, looking delighted. When I left, I was like, of course, Margaret, who is so good at reading herself and other people, she's figured out how to transcend the boundaries of traditional relationships. She is on a higher plane now. That's what it looked like from the outside anyway. Like, if you're ever in a position and someone is trying to propose non-monogamy to you or describing it, and they're like, well, it's just like so much more like elevated, right? Like you just like really get to a place where you just like realize you're above all of those feelings. Like that's not true. And my joke has always been like, I don't need to be only. What I actually prefer is to be best. (laughs) And non-monogamy in a way presents an opportunity for that because how can you know your best if there isn't a crowd among which to stand out? That was one of those jokes that's a little bit more telling than you realize when you're making it. (laughs) Over time, Problems emerge in this triangle. Without saying too much, it becomes clear to Margaret that she and Jill are not a good match. Margaret is spending a ton of brain power trying to communicate with Jill and Jack. It is not at all like having the network of friends she talked about before. This is being fully accountable to twice as many people, including one, Jill, whom she doesn't feel capable of making happy. Picturing like this web of emotional labor and yeah. like relationship management that is like just keeps like, um, connecting and connecting. And- yeah, like those uh, like those those operators in like 1950s movies where they would just be like w- working the switchboard. That is, I think, for a lot of people who end up in polyamory or ethical non-monogamy, like exactly what it's like. A bad reason to get into ethical non-monogamy is if you really, really like sleeping with people who aren't your partner. A great reason to get into ethical non-monogamy is if you love Google Calendar. (laughs) (laughs) If you really like spreadsheets. (laughs) If if time management is your metier, then like, boy, (laughs) polyamory needs you. I'd felt increasingly basically like I was holding her in a dynamic that made her extremely unhappy and that what she wanted to reach as an endpoint was not what I wanted to reach as an endpoint, which, you know, she would have in a perfect world, we would have been like moving into a house together in like six to 18 months and starting to try to have kids together. Jill 
Margaret decides to end her relationship with Jill. Jack is still with both of them. It doesn't go well. So it's like a triangle, which I picture like each side of the triangle turning into a line where he's like in the middle of it. I have this. And it's sort of like a tug of war. (laughs) It becomes like a land battle. After my part of the thruple falls apart in like June of 2018, their relationship with one another finally falls apart in like October of 2018. And then he and I have a year where we are together, where we can sleep with other people, but mostly aren't and are mostly just functioning as a average couple. We have conversations during that time about what it would look like to resume more ethical non-monogamous activities. But it doesn't seem to be something there's a lot of energy behind for him. And I'm just sort of wondering if like, well, maybe this was something that he needed to do at one point that he's kind of worked through. And I I don't know that I inspected that much further. But then something big happens. Around the summer of 2019, Margaret says, Jack mentions a woman he'd dated in the past who'd come back into his life. Jack says that he's interested in dating her again and that he thought he might have serious feelings for her. In a perfect world, he wants to stay with Margaret, but also date this woman. Margaret is open to him trying something casual with someone else, but she doesn't think she can handle Jack being with another person he might love. And I thought that was the conversation we were going to have. And the conversation that we had instead was him confessing that he had spent the first year roughly, that he and I had been together sleeping with two women behind my back. Is this in that first year where the relationship was undefined or was this after? So it encompasses both the time when our relationship was undefined, where it's not really ethical, but it's not explicitly forbidden. We had not established any rules. It encompasses the time when we switched to ethical non-monogamy, when There were rules, very explicit ones, that would have demanded he be straight with me about that. And it also covered half of the time that we were with our partner, Uh, our partner who spent the entire time the three of us were together, very anxious about him sleeping with other people. So this woman Jack presents as someone new to date is not actually new at all. She was one of the people he'd already been seeing. I had just, like, very few bright lines, like, pretty straightforward, simple ones. And, boy, could they just not, uh, they just were not something that he could grasp or be bound by. Even worse, Margaret had vouched for this guy with Jill. I took on this role of being like, no, like, Jack has a complicated relationship with all of this stuff, but he doesn't like lying and he doesn't like cheating. He is like me. We both like to be honest and we like that this lets us be that way. You can trust him. And then I found out that no, (laughs) no, no, neither of us could. The last red flag for me is when I say I would be open to continuing, but it would have to be just us because I don't trust you 
to do this anymore. You know, I'd like gone to another country and like stayed with his sister and her husband and helped him take care of their one-year-old for a week. You know, like this was a this was a very serious relationship and I sort of thought that that was that this was it for me. You know, like this was the person I was going to be with forever. Whether I come to that conclusion a bit precipitously is something I've been examining about myself ever since. But either way, I I felt it was a very serious thing. And I thought he did, too. That's why she wants to give it a last chance, as long as it can be just them. And I remember I asked for it, and he immediately said, no, that's not possible. I know this will work for you, Meredith, but it was like in Buffy when... um, when she stakes a vampire and they just explode into dust. Like, emotionally, that's how I felt in that moment. It was like I'd just been dusted. I don't think I screamed at him. I think I barely raised my voice. But I I knew that was that. I did so much work to make him feel comfortable. I did so much work all the time to make him feel safe, to make him feel like he could trust me. I was like, and it doesn't even earn me this much. It doesn't even earn me a willingness to try. He did take what he did to me very seriously, and he did feel terrible about it. And so he sort of went on like a national confession tour where he told everyone just what had gone on. And Lost some friends in the process. I need to say here that when I asked Margaret to come on the show, I thought we'd be talking about the fact that even in more open relationships, there are rules and boundaries, and they're just as important. I also thought that maybe she'd say she broke a rule she should have followed, the one from Maya Angelou that goes something like, when people show you who they are, believe them. I mean, Jack showed Margaret that he had trouble with honesty from moment one, and from moment three, and moment four. But Margaret's take on this was different than I expected. With a lot of reflection, she found value in making this mistake, in hitting a wall multiple times with Jack. Because up until Jack, she hadn't actually made many mistakes she could learn from. With this, she learned what she could manage and what kind of person was unmanageable. She learned she could date women. She learned she doesn't want to be a go-between. She learned how to walk away when someone doesn't deserve you. What I am sort of like haunted by when I think back about this relationship and I think back about the choices that I made within it is what I talk with my therapist about, frankly, is like, why did I think this was the most I deserved? Why did I think this was as much as I needed, as much as I could have and enough to make me happy? Because it was none of the above. And what I would love to know from him is why he thought he deserved so much. Like why he felt entitled to my time and my love and my work and my intelligence and my caring on terms that I'd never agreed to. I never would have given so much of myself to someone who was lying to me. And that was the one thing I thought This whole framework was there to protect me from. (laughs) Sometimes you're going to be presented with something that is a deeply compelling bad idea and that there's actually really 
real value in like following that impulse. My mom would buy these sort of toys that she thought someday would be collectible and they would just sort of sit on the top shelf of the closet and they would just be like in their boxes in mint condition. And at 32, that's kind of how I felt. I felt like I was still in my box in mint condition. And I was like, what am I, what am I saving me for? (laughs) Like, what am I waiting for, for an opportunity to let myself be dinged up a little bit? Like, let myself be in a position where Maybe I want something that I don't know I can have right away. And I want something that I'm not positive I get to keep forever. Man, like nobody would mistake me for being in mint condition now. But at the same time, I also know so much more about myself than I could ever have found out if I had just done the things that made sense. So I guess what I would say is if there's something that doesn't make sense, but it's still what you want, sometimes the only way out is through. (laughs) I get to walk forward now in a life that I've built, being honest and kind and careful with the people around me and work to make sure that he's an anomaly in my experiences. And he has to go forward in a life where he's a constant. And I think I have a much better deal there. Love Letters is a production of the Boston Globe and PRX. Today's episode was produced by Caitlin Harrop and Scott Hellman. Ned Porter does our audio mixing, sound design, and mastering. Devin Smith does our audience engagement. Love Letters illustrations by Ashanti Davis. Check them out on the Love Letters Instagram. Special thanks to Brian McGrory and Linda Henry. Our music is from APM. And if you like the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And you can always send us a letter, we are an advice column, to loveletters at boston.com. We're online at loveletters.show. I'm reminded of my grandfather probably years before he died, a few years before he died in his 90s. He looked at me and he said, you know what? I think we were supposed to be Goldstein this whole time. (laughs) So he said, we're going to be Goldstein now. And I looked at him and I was like, you snooze, you lose. You can't do this to me at like 90 years old and be like, guess what? We're doing this different. Like, no, I'm Meredith Goldstein. It doesn't work. I'm Meredith Goldstein. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 